Ladies and gentlemen, people of the internet, welcome back to yet another episode of Crypto Over Coffee. I hope you're doing well today. And if you're new here, every Saturday, we start off the weekend right by breaking down the latest news and the hottest topics in the world of technology and cryptocurrency over a cup of delicious coffee. Now, that being said, in today's episode, we've got Bitcoin price analysis, Cardano Gogan news, Elrond staking updates, our usual 404 logic not found segment, and much more. So make sure that you stick around to the end of the video or the podcast for all the updates today. Now, as we always do, though, let's kick it off with questions from you, the awesome folks who watch Crypto Over Coffee, listen to Crypto Over Coffee. So if you want one of your questions answered, leave them in the comments down below. Tweet me at Ashoshi4 or leave them in the Hashoshi Discord chat, which will be in the link down below. And if you would be so inclined, please do subscribe to the channel and hit the bell button so you get a heads up whenever I post new content. Or of course, you can follow the podcast on your preferred platform. So let's go ahead and dive into these questions. Now, the first question of the day is from, let's see what we got here, Alan M. Barry Jr. When do you think the gas fees will be in check and how? So this is in regards to Ethereum, and I know that congestion is a huge concern for everybody. Uh, the, the cost of making transactions on the Ethereum blockchain can be quite crazy high, though there have been some periods of, of actual, actually kind of reasonable gas fees in the last couple of weeks. It's been few and far between. Now, I think a lot of the, uh, the hope was hedged on the release of the Layer 2 optimism, which is basically optimistic rollups, the ability to scale more effectively on the layer one chain as well, which will eventually happen on Ethereum 2.0 using similar rollup technology. Essentially, the idea is that we will be able to achieve better scalability with Ethereum 1.0, as they call it now, using optimism. The problem is optimism, it's a very cutting edge technology. It is a very important technology. It's gonna take some time to build. There's been a recent delay in the launch of optimism, which to me, no issue, but I know a lot of people are extremely frustrated by this, which means it will take a little bit longer, maybe into the summer, it looks like, for us to actually reap the benefits of something like optimism. Of course, there are other layer twos like uh, Polygon, formerly Matic, that are very, very, very high quality projects in my humble opinion. But of course, layer two adoption is something that's going to also take time. People need to actually use them uh, as much as they should be used. And so I think that gas fees will likely be in check with the release of more of these layer twos. Optimism is one I think is going to really move the needle. But of course, Ethereum 2.0 is really the ultimate solution, the long-term solution. And that probably won't be around for the next uh, at least one and a half years, in my humble opinion. So thank you so much for your question, Alan. Second question is from John Bartolo. Uh, thank you so much for the kind words about the channel. He asks, what are your thoughts on Ave? And do you think more coins which become chain agnostic will rise higher than coins which are single or bridged? Now, I actually think that it's sort of a mix of your question. I think that the, the, the projects that will be the most successful will be ones that are a part of a blockchain network that is interoperable with others. So hopefully, hopefully Ethereum does the work necessary to interoperate both in the Cosmos ecosystem and the Polkadot ecosystem, and maybe even in the icon world as well. I, I think that would be a brilliant choice because it will keep Ethereum in the mix so that something like Ethermint in Cosmos, which is essentially a fully Ethereum compatible zone in Cosmos, doesn't eat Ethereum's lunch in that Cosmos world. Just, just a thought. So I think that ultimately projects like Ave that are starting to branch out to make their, their product usable in other places are brilliant. 
but I think other projects should be doing the exact same thing because the more users ultimately that can use your product, of course, in a way that doesn't reduce the security guarantees or doesn't open up attack vectors, right? Because simply having the ability to interoperate doesn't necessarily mean it's it's safe interoperability for something like DeFi where you know latency or a bad Oracle, et cetera, can cause really, really big problems. So you wanna make sure that it's done correctly. That being said, with that assumption being made, if you have interoperability, true interoperability between your sort of native home blockchain and blockchains around, you know, around the ecosystem, the better off you are because you have more users, more access to capital, more access to different types of users and access to different types of technologies. So you can expand your product offering over time as well. And so I think that that is going to be a theme of the next five to 10 years is does your project interoperate? and it, can it be used elsewhere other than its native chain? Agreed, thank you so much. Uh, third question is from Tankmon354. What is your opinion on the types of NFTs that are appearing from game items to art to web domains? What NFTs do you think have the most potential? I think personally that the ones that have the most potential in terms of adoption would be gaming and collectibles. And I don't mean collectibles as in art. Collectibles are things like, um, event tickets, collecting your event tickets, or collecting items from engaging with people on social media, right? Badges, things that you earn, uh, certificates. Those are the types of things that I would call crypto collectibles. Those are the two things, in my opinion, that are going to have the most adoption the most quickly because the barrier to entry is relatively low. You play a game, you interact on social media, you attend events, you do XYZ to earn digital items that you can collect. Digital trading cards, same sort of idea the barrier to entry is low. Digital art, on the other hand, the barrier to entry is fairly high. The cost of art is fairly difficult. Right now, there's not a lot of infrastructure in place to prove that artists that are selling their wares online are actually the artists who created the original thing, the original piece of art. And that's gonna take some time to get there. Um, so I think art is on the way, but it's going to take longer to reach mass adoption with some of the sort of mainstay art collector types. But there will be this sort of uh, hype break that happens naturally in this NFT space, and eventually it will force people to reevaluate the way that NFTs are being used and how they work. Uh, and so that's going to that's going to change. I think web domains as NFTs also pretty clever, but of course that space already has quite a few uh, entries. So far, you've got, you know, unstoppable domains, for example, you've got the, uh, the ENS domains, etc. So there's a lot of options there already. And I actually think that one other place where NFTs are going to be fairly important is in NFT credentials, your credentials from university, from other places being issued to you as non-fungible tokens signed by institutions. I think that that is going to be a place where NFTs start to be used. Thank you for your question. And final question is from Sebastian W. Do you think it's better to continue to dollar cost average into Bitcoin, even at its current highs, or to wait for small correction opportunities to lump some by? In my opinion, it is usually, usually better to dollar cost average because it's really hard to time the market effectively. However, some people can time the market effectively, if not by accident. So really, I leave it up to you. But in my opinion, dollar cost averaging generally renders the best results over time if you're consistent about it. You can't do it for three weeks, then stop and then three weeks and then stop. It's better to do it consistently over time with a set amount of money that is 
comfortable for you to to afford to do it. Of course, when sometimes people see these big $10,000 dips in Bitcoin from 60 to $50,000, they're like, okay, well, I'm going to drop in a big lump sum. It goes back up to 55,000 or 56,000 like we just recently saw, and that's a good win. So it really depends on on what strategy you're most comfortable with and what renders you the best results. So thank you so much. Let's go ahead and dive into the news. Now, just a friendly reminder, please be aware of scammers that are in the comments that are posing as me. If the comment does not have the name highlighted like you see here on the screen, it is not me and you can go ahead and report them. I will not ask you to contact me on WhatsApp or any other platform or give you trading advice, etc. For those of you who are new here though, there is also a partnership with Kobo. They make the awesome Kobo Vault Wallet. And on the channel, on Crypto Over Coffee, I'll be giving away a Kobo tablet, steel seed phrase backup device in every single episode from here on out. So all you gotta do to enter the random draw is just to comment on the video and I'll pick a random winner each week. If the product is not available in your region and you win, I will just send you some Bitcoin instead. And just so everyone is aware, this Kobo Tablet Plus is an amazing device. So the winner of last week's giveaway is here on the screen. So big congratulations to you. And of course, I will be in touch. Now, in keeping with you know true crypto over coffee tradition, let's go ahead and jumpstart the news with a Bitcoin price analysis session and Bitcoin news update. So we have sort of a, a surprising trend that was bucked this week. We had an Elon Musk tweet that didn't, I repeat, did not send Bitcoin sky high. And I'll talk about that in a second. But price-wise, we've had a fairly down week this week overall. There have been some significant drops from the near $60,000 highs from last week, and we spent much of this week hovering in the low 50Ks. I'm not all surprised about this. And last week we discussed this. We discussed how I believe there will be more dips before we get a new to all-time high. And here we are in relative a relative state of dips for most of the week. However, late in the week, a bit of resurgence saw Bitcoin's price jump back above 54,000, renewing some bullish sentiment. And of course, that's making everyone happy. That said, the fundamentals still do look okay to me, and these consolidation periods are to be expected. The biggest bullishness that I can see is the overarchingly different sentiment across the sophisticated parties of the world, the billionaires, the institutions, etc. The biggest news of which is actually one that came out of Tesla this week, because Elon Musk officially announced that Bitcoin was going to be accepted as a payment method for Tesla vehicles starting that day. So this week it is already working. And it's using open source Bitcoin infrastructure that Tesla themselves are operating. So you have self-sovereign Bitcoin nodes owned by Tesla. What a world that we live in. This is not even the best part of that news either. The real news is that they are not converting the Bitcoin that they get to fiat currency when they receive it for vehicle purchases. This is the most significant piece of news that I think is not getting enough attention. This is from Elon's tweet directly. The subtle message in this is that Tesla as a company is betting on the longevity of Bitcoin by preferentially keeping it instead of converting it to fiat currency that they could very easily convert it to. That is a statement. That's a statement of belief. They would not keep Bitcoin that they receive for payments for their vehicles, their major line of business, if they believe that Bitcoin will go down over time. This is the largest automaker by market capitalization betting on Bitcoin, and that is bullish if you ask me. Now, this week, Cardano brought some clarity to the launch of the Gogan updates, <clears throat> which were laid out in the recent Cardano 360 event. And during this event, plans for the final stage of the Gogan launch for smart contracts, dubbed Alonzo, were brought to light, and they can best be summarized 
as follows. Near the end of April, the integration between the core node and ledger components of Cardano's mainnet and the smart contract components that have been under development should be ready to go and there will be a private testnet. And then in late April or early May, a public testnet will launch and testing will continue there until likely the June timeframe, at which point external exchanges, wallet providers, and other peripherals will have time to upgrade their infrastructure to support Gogan's final launch during the Alonzo hard fork. All of this suffices to say that while the updates will be more or less ready to go by the end of May, it may take until August to get this in the hands of the public on mainnet. Now, I can already imagine the frustration amongst Cardano fans at the timeline because people tend to want things immediately. And of course, the hate from other parties is only going to make that worse. However, let me give my take as someone who has worked in tech, specifically in blockchain and software for the past five years. And I will say this, these protocols are extremely tricky to build. Programming languages are tough to build, even when you're building from an existing framework. And what's worse is you have unpredictable users and external effects in blockchain that you don't have in centralized software. Long testnet periods are absolutely critical for catching showstopper issues before mainnet with relatively real users. Now, if you rush these updates to mainnet and a showstopper bug is found then, you could have a full-scale meltdown of Cardano and all of this work is for nothing because trust could be shaken in the network if something like that happens. A public testnet means that startups like Cardano Kids or Liquid Finance or other startups we talked about the last couple weeks can build their smart contracts and test them so they're ready on day one of mainnet launch. And this will, of course, be great. And I also want to say, you know, I'm an Ethereum fan. People know that. And my career has been predicated on Ethereum's technology in many ways. I've built mostly Solidity smart contracts in my career. But before Ethereum fanboys start running their mouths on this topic and saying how Cardano is terrible, remember Ethereum's short-term boon for congestion on their blockchain in the form of the Layer 2 Optimism protocol is delayed, which proves that good software takes time. You've got one shot to get it right, and done right is better than just done. So everyone's trying to build the best things they can, and I respect all parties for doing so. I support Cardano and Ethereum together, and I urge others to adopt this same mentality. Now, I've waited a long time for this day, but the launch of the Elrond Eagold staking is now live in the absolutely amazing mobile wallet called Myar. I will link it down below if you haven't used Myar already because it is unbelievable how good it actually is. Now, on Friday, I went ahead and staked my Eagold with a couple of staking providers on the Elrond network using the Myar app in a fully non-custodial manner in a matter of seconds. Staking providers represent individuals or organizations who undertake the operational duties of running validator nodes on the Elrond blockchain, and they help drive consensus and secure the network. You're pretty used to that if you're in the blockchain space. The ability for users to now play their part in the process with ease is something that makes a big difference. This update to the MyR app gives over 300,000 users the ability to stake their eGold without giving up their keys to both secure the network and, of course, steady the price of eGold, the cryptocurrency, by way of stake lock periods. Panic selling is fairly common, but it becomes very much less prevalent when you have a 10-day unstake period like Elrond does, which is imposed for anyone looking to unstake their eGold from a staking provider setup. So this should be a net benefit to the entire ecosystem around Elrond, including holders of the native eGold and validators themselves. And what I'm most excited about is the ability to earn up to 22% annual yield on my eGold holdings. It is fantastic when your crypto is working for you.
Now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for 404, logic not found. And for those of you who are as of yet uninitiated in this little firecracker of a segment, I highlight notable tech-related fails or otherwise stupid moves in the world that need to get some attention. And speaking of attention, if you want to help this video get some attention or this podcast get some attention, please do hit the like button, get subscribed, hit the follow button, whatever you can do to interact with the podcast or video because it tells the algorithm robots that you're liking what you're watching or listening to and others might do the same. Now, today's absence of logic has been offset by the purchase of carbon credits to ensure that we are carbon neutral because we are all dirty climate polluting NFT collectors and crypto users. We should be ashamed, folks. That's a joke, by the way. But jokes aside, we're talking about the insidious crypto carbon footprint fallacy. Now, I've noticed a pretty ridiculous amount of vitriol online these days about how bad crypto in general is for the environment, especially NFTs and Bitcoin. Those are the most common things. Now, I will be upfront to say that Bitcoin is by no means an energy efficient protocol to operate, but that is by design. The costs associated with the issuance of Bitcoin in the firm of miners output is part of what makes Bitcoin so valuable. It is also what makes the network secure without a standing army, a promissory note or a government behind it. So we should all get that up front. Now at face value, I think what often happens is that the critics of Bitcoin and largely the crypto space in general conflate energy usage to carbon footprint in a direct way, which is not only extremely misleading, it is also ironically indicative of a lack of understanding of how this energy is generated and used in the first place, especially in comparison with other things in the world. So let's peel this open a little bit more. Consumption of energy is not directly indicative of carbon footprint. Why? Because the source of that energy is far more important than the amount of energy that is used. Electricity that is produced by hydroelectric, geothermal, solar, wind, and other means of renewable energy sources is often referred to as a boon for carbon emissions around the world. And the dastardly sources like coal and other fossil fuels are rightly regarded as the devil in global carbon emissions. So you have a clear juxtaposition there. Now, if you explore this juxtaposition a little bit more, you'll immediately see where I'm going. The consumption of electricity required to mint an NFT or to produce the issuance and security that Bitcoin is known for is high. The requirement is high. Though the flawed assumption that climate change activists seem to always make is that all of the energy comes from directly polluting sources, or at least equivalently polluting sources to coal. Many will try to imply, usually without material evidence, that Bitcoin produces more emissions than many nation states by burning fossil fuels for its operations. They are looking at usage and extrapolating that usage to net carbon footprint with largely flawed models, or at least models that serve their negative characterization more readily. However, if we take Bitcoin for example, according to tangible data, which I can link down below, Bitcoin's energy consumption is derived from nearly 40% renewable energy, and that is a rising trend. Furthermore, Bitcoin often uses energy that would otherwise be wasted due to inadequate storage mechanisms for energy that are produced around the world. Let's solve that problem first, folks. Both of these elements must be included in any discourse about carbon footprint. Miners in Bitcoin are incentivized to use the cheapest power possible, and that tends to be renewable power. And the same arguments must be made for other networks as well. Frankly, it is more disturbing that climate change activists are not considering these basic distinctions and arguments when they attempt to cast the Bitcoin or crypto holder as a solipsistic earth destroyer. Asking the right questions is key. 
What is the energy mix of non-renewable versus renewable? Of the non-renewable sources, how much is using less polluting sources like natural gas, for example? Is my fundamental assumption about the cost per transaction or per token mint rooted in fact, or am I missing something? These are questions I rarely see answered or even pondered. And it seems that the one-sided criticism only gets louder and there's little volition to gather the facts. I cannot open every can of worms in this segment lest it consumes the entire episode, but the simple truth is that the source of the energy is more important than the consumption of energy. And subsequently, the utility of that energy consumption is far different from that of Visa, for example. Visa does not have to worry about giving the currency it uses value. It's just a transaction method. If you want to go deeper into this whole debate, read these three articles linked below by Nick Carter, a Coindesk columnist and a partner at Castle Island Ventures Fund. He has produced some of the best well-rounded content on this matter, and I am 100% on board with solving our obvious carbon emissions problems around the world, but these repeated incriminations of Bitcoin and other blockchains are not a means to that end. Crypto is far from the most pervasive threat to the continuous failure to adopt renewable energy around the world. As usual, this is human beings who like to focus on destruction rather than solutions and focus on the wrong solutions to the right problems. And to that I must say, 404, logic not found. Now, I do also want to shout out a pretty awesome company in the Ethereum space that built something recently that I will surely be using, and that company is ETHWORKS. ETHWORKS is a company in the Ethereum space that has built popular developer tooling like Waffle, a lightweight tool for compiling and testing smart contracts. I use that tool myself fairly often. However, the latest gem from ETHWORKS is called UseDAP, and it is a front-end decentralized application framework that will accelerate the development of the interactive components of dApps in a significant way. The tool uses React, which is arguably the most popular front-end JavaScript framework out there, and it provides an abstracted set of functionalities and features that follow best practices for Ethereum dApp development so the developer themselves can focus on their app-specific features and not the miscellaneous common tasks that go into building the actual uh, the skeleton of the dApp. The used app framework uses React hooks to update state, to fetch data, and etc. without dependence on class components, which without knowing the ins and outs of React, I can summarize basically the value by saying it tends to render much less code to do the exact same functionality. The code is easier to follow, and it reduces the complexity of your app as it grows. So this used app framework will surely expedite the development of dApps for those who use it, so I felt it deserved a nice shout out. Now, every once in a while, I also receive a product that I think is pretty darn cool that I wanna share with you all. And today is one of those days. I recently had the opportunity to review one of the brand new gray Corazon hardware wallets, which is effectively a Trezor Model T hardware wallet, which I really like by the way, with a sweet high-end upgrade on the exterior. The gray Corazon Trezors are very much a luxury item, like a Rolex or a Lamborghini, with machined titanium and aluminum shells in vibrant metallic colors. So you'll see I have a red one here that make your wallet stand out from the crowd of plastic counterparts. Now, the operable components of the wallet are sandwiched between the two pieces of machined aluminum with hardened resin to ensure that physical tampering attempts are virtually impossible. And the material itself looks and feels darn good. The weight in your hand feels like a premium product, which the $600 price tag would also probably convey. 
Now, would I recommend something like this for a brand new entrant to the crypto space? No way. You might not want something this expensive, but if you want to have a statement piece to use for your everyday crypto activity and you've got some expendable resources, this is about as a powerful statement as any. It's got USB-C, it has a touch screen in full color, it has this beautiful aluminum body, and to be quite honest with you, it is a pretty darn sweet wallet. So I figured I would throw this out there for anyone who's interested, and I will leave a link down in the description below. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for Crypto Over Coffee this week. I want to thank you so much for watching this and every other episode of Crypto Over Coffee. And if you have some time to stick around, please do watch my video that I did with Sheehan from Cointracker about crypto taxes. This guy is a master CPA focused on cryptocurrency taxes, and he can help answer some of the questions that you might have about cryptocurrency taxes going into this tax year. So thank you so much for watching this video, and I wish you and your family a wonderful and restful week and weekend ahead. And until next time, cheers.